Welcome back to CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins and I'm the host of Energy Voices. Over the next hour, we're going to take you through a tour of some of the most interesting and pressing conversations in the world of energy. We have a very international show tonight as we have a number of interviews and reports from the Student Energy Regional Summits that recently took place in Cape Town, Mexico City, Aberdeen, and New York. We also have one of Student Energy's most passionate volunteers, Andreas Lehner, who's in person at the Cleantech Open in Valencia, Spain, to interview some of the world's leading experts in cleantech entrepreneurship. As always, we encourage everyone to pay, participate and share their thoughts by using hashtag Energy Voices on Facebook or Twitter. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Energy Voices, please visit bit.ly slash Energy Voices. Next up on Energy Voices on CGSW 90.9 FM, we have This Month in Energy. So I'm going to turn it over to Jenny Matchett, who's going to share with us the top stories from this month in the world of energy. This Month in Energy. Alternative Energy News. A very important event in energy democratization occurred this month in Queensland, Australia, where wholesale electricity prices dropped below zero dollars in the middle of the afternoon. The traditional utility business model that fetches fossil fuel producers top dollar during peak demand periods, like the middle of the day, has been completely disrupted given the rooftop solar revolution that has taken place in Australia. In Queensland, there is an installed capacity of 1,100 megawatts on more than 350,000 buildings. And while the sun shines brightly during the day, these solar systems are rendering coal power generators useless and financially unviable. China and India are both working to harness the nuclear power of thorium to provide a safer, stable form of energy. India has stated it plans to build a thorium-based nuclear reactor by 2016. China has sped up its timeline on a thorium nuclear reactor to be delivered in the next 10 years. Thorium is widely considered to be safer than uranium because thorium reactors can be switched off, produce less radioactive waste, and are more difficult to weaponize. U.S. economic sanctions against Russia may prove to be more of a publicity threat than a financial one. Russia's oil export-dependent economy has become reliant on Chinese lending and therefore faces little risk with respect to accessing capital in the face of these U.S. sanctions. The latest sanctions forbid American banks and investors from issuing loans with greater than 90 days maturity to four major Russian companies, one of which, Rosneft, is the world's largest publicly traded oil company. India announced its largest solar power auction to date. 1,500 megawatts of solar power will be auctioned in the quest to make solar PV power supply on par with the cost of coal in the next five years. Fossil Fuel News As the devastating news continues to pour out of the Middle East, an Islamic militant group, the Islamic State Group, has taken control of Syria's largest oil field along the Iraqi border. This move now places the Islamic State in control of most oil and gas fields in an East Syrian province that produces about 350,000 barrels of oil a day. A Syrian activist group that opposed the Assad regime was guarding this oil field, but has now retreated from several locations along the Iraqi border, leaving border control to the Islamic State group. Unburnable carbon has definitely become a buzzword in energy. This term refers to leaving proven fossil fuel reserves in the ground 
to keep global temperatures from rising over the two degree mark. As proven reserves affect how oil companies value their business, recently, large institutional investors and other associations have questioned big oil about the threat of unburnable carbon to its balance sheets and ultimately to investor returns. Six majors have publicly responded, including BP, Shell, ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, and StatOil. While all these companies have publicly stated that anthropogenic climate change is real and related policy may present risks to their business, all are in agreement that climate action will not pose a significant threat to business in the years ahead. Climate change. Lake Mead, the largest reservoir in the U.S., reached its lowest point ever this month. Lake Mead has been stressed by severe drought, population increase, and rising temperatures. The lake provides water for 20 million people across the southwestern United States, and its decline could therefore mean serious trouble. That's This Month in Energy. We have an on-site interview done by Alvaro, a team member of the Latin American Student Energy Summit, with one of the speakers at the summit, Ryan Dick, who's a close friend of Student Energy and an amazing success story of a young entrepreneur. Tell us about your business or organization. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Alvaro. Um, my company's name is Radical Energy. We're a renewable energy project developer, currently focusing on solar. So basically we take a, a project from an idea stage all the way to the point of operation. Um, basically, as a, as a company, we wanted to prioritize not only ethical returns for our investors to, to invest in uh, renewable energy projects, but also we wanted to prioritize environmental protection and, and social investments and social benefits from the very beginning. So that's kind of the basic and the fundamentals for our project. Uh, right now, we have a, a five-person team, and though Canadian company, we're currently uh, operating the majority of our time in, in Quito, Ecuador, on a 63.5 megawatt peak project, uh, a solar photovoltaic project. And we have two government contracts uh, in which they're going to buy the, the electricity. We're also working with um, four other companies, two from, from Canada, one from the United States, and sorry, five companies, uh, and also two from Spain. Um, for funding, we're working with three banks, uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, ProParco, and FMO, which is uh, private development banks of France and um, the Netherlands, respectively. Okay, um, and what inspired you to start at such a young age? Um, you know, I started working at a young age, you know, maybe 12, cutting lawns and, um, and doing dishes. And, you know, though I, I loved working, I definitely like working for myself. And where I'm from, there isn't a, a big renewable energy industry. And without a doubt, I, I knew it was my passion. Um, after learning about energy, after going to conferences on energy, I'd feel like I was, you know, floating, that I was so happy and just inspired. So I knew that was my calling in life. So instead of going to get, you know, five, ten year, five to ten years of experience, I thought, you know what, the... The industry is growing now, there's opportunities now, so I need to move now. So uh, I found a, a great team and some great investors and I, you know, I started at 27 and I didn't think that's too, too young. Um, and, you know, it's been a great experience thus far. Nice. Um, what's the vision for the next five years and how do you plan on getting there? Um, it's tough to say. I mean, you definitely have to plan, plan ahead. Um, Right now, we definitely, our priority is getting our Ecuadorian project done. It's fully permitted, 
all approved. We've purchased the land. It's it's ready for construction. We've actually started civil works on land. Uh, we've now sold our project to our um, to our consortium of, of lenders. Sorry, our consortium of investors. And now we have responsibilities to help them bring it to the point of finance and uh, throughout construction and into operation. Um, looking forward past this project, we're, we're interested in other Latin American countries. Um, some of the smaller ones, some of the bigger countries like Brazil, Chile, and Mexico, the bigger solar companies are going into. Uh, so we're kind of looking at other countries like Belize um, and Nicaragua. And uh, I would like to bring the company back to Canada. So we're also looking Western Canada. And I think maybe we might transition into uh, some large-scale rooftop projects. Hey, so, so you chose to focus on the so like on the energy. So on, 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 I'm going to start over that question. So you chose to focus on the side of the solar energy. But if you had to tackle an entirely different problem, what would it be? Mm, that's a tough one. I mean, there's a lot of problems out there. I see solar energy as one being one of the, the best solutions, but it's not a silver bullet. Uh, we're going to need a bunch of solutions to bring the world to a more trend, you know, more sustainable point. I think uh, anything that deals with with garbage, um, garbage is great. We're, you know, like death and taxes are for sure a thing in life. It also seems like our society is just going to create garbage forever. So utilizing garbage to make uh, energy, I think that's great. Also, another thing is energy efficiency. Um, it's considered to be a low-hanging fruit. You know, it's not sexy like new technologies such as renewable energies, but just simple investments in, in our homes and our factories can really save a lot of uh, save a lot of power. And you know, we won't need as much energy generation as a result. So that'd be my two. Perfect. Well, is there anything else? Like, what moves do you keep on working on these? Um, I don't know. It's uh, been a lot of uncertainty in my life, and I think that's maybe a normal thing for an entrepreneur. I'm a, a young entrepreneur, so I can't say that's uh, everyone's story, but the excitement and the risk is addicting, and uh, I like charting my own course, and I, I strongly encourage anyone else that, that knows about their passion, that knows what they want to do, to just take the leap and to do it because things become easier and easier, and it's like you gain gravity. More people come to you that want to help you that are inspired by you that want to work with you um, so yeah I don't know I just really encourage other entrepreneurs to make the move now because the world you know needs change now uh, we can't wait to 10 15 20 years to, to make those changes excellent well thank you very much thank you very much Alvaro. up next we'll be interviewing Daniel Hill the founder of the green impact campaign to bring Daniel Hill, who's one of the most dynamic young entrepreneurs in the world of energy, onto the radio show. So before we kick off, Daniel, can you give us a, a quick background on, on who you are and what the Green Impact Campaign is? Sure thing. So uh, my name is Daniel Hill, and I'm the uh, co-founder and president of Green Impact Campaign. Um, before I uh, founded this organization, I was in the sustainability consulting industry for five years. Um, doing energy management, sustainability strategy for um, large international real estate developers, uh, private industry, public industry, um, kind of across the board. Um, and then a couple of years ago, about three years ago, uh, co-founded Green Impact Campaign as a way to really help 
students and small businesses kind of really get involved with energy efficiency. Um, so as far as Green Impact Campaign, uh, we're a volunteer-powered nonprofit, um, and we're working to really reduce the environmental impact of small businesses while at the same time better equipping the next generation of climate leaders. Um, so what that means is we're really providing students with these cloud-based tools and this training to go out and conduct energy audits for local businesses in their community. Um, so to date, we've worked with students at over 50 different institutions, and we've helped somewhere around 200 small businesses identify over 1.7 million kilowatt hours of annual energy savings. Um, and we just keep getting new volunteers coming on board, and we keep trying to reach more businesses every day. And for someone who's uh, unfamiliar with what an energy audit is, maybe walk us through um, what have been some of the sort of tangible impacts of some of the energy audits that you've done or some of your volunteers have done and sort of what actually takes place. Sure. So, yeah, the uh, an, an energy audit is, I always equate it like taking a building to the doctor's office. Um, it's kind of a way to assess your current energy usage and then identify recommendations and ways to actually reduce your energy usage. Um, so I use the doctor analogy because if you're sick, if you have a sick building, uh, you have to first figure out what's wrong with it, and then you have to get a prescription to figure out how to get better. Um, so in this case, uh, we used a cloud-based tool that we developed called GEMS that basically streamlines the entire energy auditing process. So Traditionally, the, the service is very labor-intensive. Um, you go walk through a building, you, you take a look and assess the different energy-using um, systems, so things like lighting, plug load, HVAC, um, building envelope, anything that uses energy you take a look at. Um, and what you do is really kind of assess to see if there's any opportunities within those systems to either implement a new technology or change the operations of it to reduce the energy usage and, in turn, reduce the emissions and cost of, of running that building. Um, so what we've done is we've taken that pen and paper service and we've kind of streamlined the whole thing with a cloud-based tool. So students actually just pick up their smartphone or um, a PDF that we have and walk through an organization's building with these simple yes or no questions that they're prompted with. Um, so you kind of Take a, take a look at, for example, the lighting. You see what type of light bulbs they have, what type of exit signs, what kind of controls. Um, and you mark simple yes or no questions. And after, your, after all these questions have been answered, uh, the tool actually generates a report for the small business that then provides them with these custom actionable ways for them to actually reduce their energy usage. Um, so it's really taking the guesswork out of, you know, what can I do to make my business more green? Um, and at the same time, it's really putting something in the hands of students that want to know more about sustainability. They want to know more about green buildings, um, but it's no longer just a term. It's these tangible recommendations that they're actually learning about. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And and what, are, what have been some of the most common uh, sort of outcomes or recommendations that you typically see? Yeah, so a lot of it usually does come in the lighting system. Um, we actually just were crunching some numbers the other day, and it's somewhere around 60% of small businesses still use incandescent light bulbs, which um, we found a bit shocking since that's kind of one of the most publicly announced um, ways to save is to, you know, upgrade your incandescent bulbs to CFLs or LEDs. Um, 
a lot of it's in lighting, though. So incandescent bulbs being upgraded, um, installing occupancy sensors in, in shared areas like bathrooms or conference rooms or closets. Um, then on the control side of even HVAC, things like installing programmable thermostats or changing your filters, um, replacing higher-efficiency windows, those those generally come up quite often. Um, but yeah, when, whenever we're talking to a business for the first time, we always say to start with lighting because it's it's so tangible and it's it's so uh, so quick to have a payback that it's it's uh it's just smart business to do it. Yeah, and one of the things I wanted to pick your brain about was um, sort of why energy efficiency grabbed your heartstrings and and why you were sort of personally uh, interested in devoting several years of your life to to championing the causes of energy efficiency. Because in the world of energy, uh, we tend to get a lot more press for some of the sort of sexy concepts around tackling climate change or um, deployment of renewables. And and we sort of have uh, this starry-eyed approach sometimes to uh, these different aspects of energy when to your point, like energy efficiency is one of those things that tackles many energy issues and makes smart business. So I would just love to get your sort of insider's viewpoint on on why this hooked you and, and why you think that there aren't more people that are this passionate about energy efficiency. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And um, I certainly wouldn't put the term sexy and energy efficiency anywhere <laughs> near each other because like, like you said, you know, so many of these other alternative and renewable energy sources um, are really getting a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of attention, and rightfully so. I mean, there's some really cutting technologies out there. Um, the The way that I kind of fell into to learning about energy efficiency and really developing a passion for it is, uh, I went and got my undergrad in actually um, integrated science and technology, and I had to focus on energy. Um, so I learned kind of about the the whole spectrum of energy, and it was it was an amazing foundation for for really kind of launching into that as a career. Um, but my first internship out of college was with an energy auditing um, consulting firm, and I had never heard about energy audits. I knew nothing about them, and you know I was coming out of college with with this knowledge of solar panels and wind turbines and and you know alternative fuels, all these really cool things that I knew about. Um, but I always knew they were so expensive and and they weren't always practical. So I, I started learning about these energy audits, and it was just amazing to me how how cost effective and how effective just in general that these really small changes people could make in their buildings, um, how big of an impact they really had. Um, so they say energy efficiency is the most proven, the most cost effective solution to, to really bring about um, energy change within buildings. Um, and really kind of getting involved with it and having firsthand, kind of getting your hands dirty with, with energy efficiency it's so easy to see that because, you know, making a small change on your thermostat, the, the effects that it'll have on your utility bill and kind of really extrapolating that out to the, the carbon emissions offset that, that it'll have, um, it's just really hard to kind of go anywhere else now for me because it's it's so impactful with such small changes. Mm-hmm. And the... The sort of question I wanted to ask as well is is why you think it's it's still taking so long for there to be a real movement around energy efficiency. It sort of shocks me as well to hear 
your stat about there being 60% of your, your business is still using incandescent light bulbs because it is such a direct and immediate return on investment where you're actively making money by switching over. So what do you think is the, the cause or the reason why um, we just can't sort of shake people into either caring or, or taking action on some of these, these challenges? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's something that I've thought about a lot and our organization's thought about a lot. And I wish there was one one reason we could really pinpoint. Um, but it, it seems like it's kind of across the board. Um, for some businesses, it's, it's really, you know, we work with small businesses, so their budgets are very tight and they have to, you know, everything is budgeted to, to the $50. It's, it's very tight for everything. So any type of change really takes a lot of thought. Um, but to the, to the bigger picture of just energy efficiency in general, I, I think it's sometimes hard for businesses to make changes that they won't really be able to um, show off to the public, so to speak. Um, so when you change out a light bulb, you know, you're not really adding anything new. It's just an existing thing that's being swapped. Um, and a lot of these larger businesses really like to show, you know, we installed these solar panels on top of our roof. And they can really kind of show it in their marketing and, and in their PR. Um, and that kind of gives a, a further incentive for them to actually take those actions. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the smaller, especially operational changes for energy efficiency, uh, it's really hard to, to get that same type of recognition because it's a little harder to show off. Um, in terms of really kind of turning that around, though, it, it's our hope that the more we, we show businesses kind of help them to get that first small win, you know, just doing one change, seeing the benefits of it, and really kind of gaining momentum from it. Um, that's really our, our theory of change for it, is if we can show some type of impact with just a small change, we really believe that it'll, it'll kind of catch on and some momentum will get going with each business to, to keep going and just really seeing how far they can go with having such limited resources. Um, because that's really the name of the game, you know, using what you have to, to make the biggest impact. That's kind of all efficiency is about. Yeah. And we've, we've been talking about uh, making energy efficiency sexy and showing it off. So maybe the answer is some sort of nudie energy efficiency calendar that we can put together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, um, uh, I, uh, I'll, I'll wait to see um, how those sales do. Yeah, we can... Uh, we can start a energy's most eligible bachelor competition and, and showcase. There, there, yeah. there you go. We'll, uh, we'll get lead to put a rating. On um, and so the, the sort of two more questions for you, Daniel. Um, yeah. One is just sort of uh, for students that are interested in this. And, and the thing that I love about this is for our student audience is it's such a tangible way to A, understand energy efficiency, B, understand green buildings, and C, get a really cool uh, sort of non-traditional mark on their resume as having actually contributed towards something. So uh, I think this is just a massive and really interesting opportunity for our, our network. So what is, how how does someone who says, you know what, that sounds kind of cool, maybe I want to uh, do an energy audit for my for mom and dad's business or for my uncle's workshop or whatnot. What is what is the way that students can go from interest into actively working with you on on one of these audits? Yeah, so it's it's as as simple as we've we've tried to make it as simple as possible. Um, if you just go to the Green Impact Campaign website, which is just greenimpactcampaign.org, um, there's a sign up form. You just enter in the most basic information. Um, and then we get in contact with you with 
everything that you need to get started that same day. Um, so that includes providing you with kind of an introductory toolkit to, to give you a bit more of background. Um, it includes tips on, on how to engage local businesses in your community. It has campaign planners to figure out how many hours you'll need to spend for the number of audits that you'd like to complete. Um, and then most importantly, we give you access to the actual energy auditing tool that we developed called GEMS. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, like I said, it's, it's the same day type of thing. So it actually takes somewhere only around 20 to 30 minutes to conduct one of these energy audits using this tool. Um, so we've seen students conduct four or five in a day. Um, it's really just kind of about how it works with your schedule. And that's really what we've tried to do this whole time. We, we were all students. We really understand how busy and non-routine a schedule can be in, when you're in school. Um, so we wanted to develop something that you can pick up and put down for 20 or 30 minutes at a time. Um, and then to, to kind of speak a little bit more about, you mentioned some of the, the benefits that, that students have been realizing from this. Um, that's, that's really another one of the missions that we had was we want to give students some type of experiential learning opportunity that's very hands-on, gets them out of the classroom, um, and they can actually talk about in interviews and put on their resume. Um, there's very few times in an interview when someone's asked them to, you know, talk about a case study that they've read. We, we figured this is something that they can really talk about, um, you know, project management, talk about sustainability consulting, all these different tangible job skills that you that you receive just from, um, you know, an hour or two of, of working with this. Um, so we've seen some really great things from our student volunteers. We have some of those amazing students that are, are being involved. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a student conduct 15 audits in a week, which was amazing. Um, we just got news from one of our other student volunteers that just landed an internship because of what she learned, and it's in a very similar sustainability consulting kind of capacity, um, and she's beyond thrilled to kind of be going into a career with that. So we, we've seen students really take it all different ways, but the, the main idea is that it's really quick, it's really easy, and it has a lot of lasting impact on, on your resume and and just kind of your future career. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And and as the last question that I want to finish off with, um, we have a recurring segment on Energy Voices called Energy Hacks, where we ask people or we provide sort of our listeners with some really tangible ways that they can hack their own energy consumption. So we've already talked about the, the switching uh, away from incandescent light bulbs. So aside from that, what is Daniel Hill's number one recommended energy hack? Number one, that's just a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, no, so my, my favorite energy hack, um, and again, this is one of those things that I was just always astounded with. Um, so there's there's about, I, I would say, 50% of the businesses that, that we've worked with have already installed programmable thermostats. Um, so meaning that the thermostat can have a set schedule that turns on and off or changes the set points of their heating and air conditioning throughout the day or the day of the week, um, which is great. Uh, But what we found out is actually 25% of those are using it incorrectly because they have the wrong date or time set. (laughs) So my my number one energy hack is actually just to make sure that the date and time on your programmable thermostat is set correctly. Uh, Because if it's wrong, then that means it'll operate outside of the schedule and someone will probably come up and override it and put it in manual mode. And then all the benefits of having a programmable thermostat are are out the window, literally. Um, So yeah, number one 
energy hack is is correct the date and time on your programmable thermostat. Okay. That's awesome, and that's that's not one that I've heard before. So you get points for <laughs> points for originality. Excellent, excellent, yeah. perfect. So uh, that's it for us today, Daniel. I just again want to thank you for coming on the show and for uh, being somebody who's young and intelligent and passionate and is focusing on uh, a really important issue in energy efficiency. Because to your point, uh, it's just such a direct and immediate benefit uh, on issues of energy and sustainability and climate change and, and even just business in general. So uh, thanks for coming on the show, and we we really look forward to working with you more in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. It's a pleasure. We're going to flip things over to Andreas Lehner, one of Student Energy's most passionate volunteers, who is going to do some interviews with experts at the Valencia Cleantech Open, exploring the world of cleantech entrepreneurship. Thank you, Sean. As said, I'm here at the Clean Energy Summit in Valencia, Spain, and I have the honor to talk to Joe Lasseter, professor at Harvard University. He teaches entrepreneurial finance and innovation in business, energy and environment in the MBA program, as well as courses in the executive education program. And he is the faculty chair of the university-wide Harvard Innovation Lab. His academic and professional work focuses on high potential ventures, including both those formed as new companies and those formed within existing organizations. Joe, what does, in your opinion, long-term energy success look like? Long-term energy success to me is cheap energy and clean energy at the same time for everyone on the planet. Great. I believe we all share the same opinion here. But... What do you see as the most exciting industry or opportunity over the next 10 years? I think the, the, there are two industries that I think are very interesting to watch. One, because it's been ignored so long, and that's nuclear power. And I don't think people of my generation are thinking about it with an open mind. But I think young people are thinking about it with an open mind. And I think open minds should examine what is going to happen realistically. And I think young people have open minds. And I'm suspicious that old people's minds get closed. Uh, secondly, it's very clear to me that we are not going to get the political consensus soon enough to avoid uh, fairly dramatic climate effects many places on the planet. So I think we need to think seriously about adaptation strategies that allow people to adapt to climate change, particularly the poor, without such severe consequences, either in terms of being deprived and suffering from energy poverty or being impacted through rising sea level or increased climate variability, as it might affect agriculture and housing. What is one piece of advice that you would give to the next generation of student leaders? Life is long. You will do many different things. And I think at each point in life, when you have a decision to make, do something that you care about intensely and passionately and pursue it that way. Uh, I think the greatest error that anyone can make is to live the life that other people think they should live rather than the life they think they should live. So pursue your own life. Uh, even in most religions, you just get one life. And so live it like you have one to live. On a more personal level, what is your career's deepest regret? 
my deepest regret is that I have not changed the things I'm doing soon enough when I recognize they're not working. Mm -hmm. I've tended to delay out of caution and out of fear of being able to find something new to do. But life changes. And when it changes, you need to adapt. And the sooner you recognize the need and move on, the better off you are in general. You can't abandon people. You can't break contracts. But at some point in time, you need to move on. And I've been too slow, basically because I've been too fearful to make the change. How could you, in your opinion, see sooner that you have to change? When, when, uh, when you set up a company, you get a board of, of advisors. And everybody who builds a company gets a board of advisors. Well, the most important investment you ever will make is your own life. Get a board of advisors. A group of people who care about you and care enough about you to tell you when you're doing stupid things in a way that you can hear it. Uh, imagine your friends. There are many that can tell you you're doing something stupid, but they say it in a way that's easy for you to ignore. Get a board of advisors who's competent, but that one that cares enough about you to say it to you in such a way that you can hear it. By the way, when you don't want to. You're your most important investment. Treat it that way. Last but not least, what is your career's deepest triumph? It's very difficult to know how anyone should value their life. For me, uh, because of how I was raised, it is important to me to know that I have been really good at what I did. It's important to me to know that I've done something that's important. And it's important that people near me, my wife, my children, agree that I was good at what I did and agree that what I did was important. If it's only me who values all those things, I think that is too shallow for me. Great, thank you very much for your time, Joe. Sean, that's it for now from Spain. Back to you guys. Over the past few months, we've begun running student essays as part of the monthly Energy Voices radio show. This month, we're excited to have Jenny Matchett read an essay by Connor O'Sullivan, a Master of Science candidate at the NYU Center for Global Affairs. Recently, Pemex has undergone a radical decentralization and has completely reformed the Mexican energy system. This, coupled with the fact that the U.S. domestic oil production has increased significantly in the past few years, has led to some really interesting opportunities for North America to act as a global energy block in relation to oil. Take it away, Jenny. The impending restructuring of Mexico's national oil company, Pemex, from a state-owned monopoly to a public-private entity will have a profound effect on the energy security and economy of Mexico. It may also have far-reaching implications for its North American neighbors, the United States and Canada, who are both experiencing what has been described as an energy revolution due to prolific oil and gas production coming primarily from shale resources. There is significant potential for offshore production in Mexico, where reserve deposits of crude oil amounting to 26.5 billion barrels of oil available for extraction has recently been discovered in the Gulf. The combined 2013 oil production of Canada, Mexico, and the United States totaled 16,826,000 barrels per day, 
And while Mexican output declined 1.1% year-on-year from 2012 to 2013, that relatively minor production decrease was overwhelmed by surging production growth from its NAFTA partners, where output rose 13.5% and 6% in the U.S. and Canada, respectively. This compares with OPEC's 2013 oil production, which totaled 36,829,000 barrels per day, or about 42% of total world output. North American oil production accounted for a little under 20% of the 2013 world total, but if Mexico arrests its production declines while the U.S. and Canada continue their upward oil production growth trajectory, a North American energy alliance could begin eroding OPEC market share to the encouragement of North American industry leaders. These developments have attracted interest from a number of the world's major oil companies, most notably Chevron, who has begun negotiations with Pemex over securing offshore drilling rights. OPEC members will be casting a worrying glance towards potential U.S.-Canadian-Mexican public-private ventures that could facilitate the emergence of a new trifecta oil block. This historic development could potentially challenge OPEC's leverage over supply and demand economics in world oil markets. However, there are still a number of issues that must be resolved if large-scale international investment is to occur in Mexico's energy industry. Firstly, there are a number of domestic issues that could potentially deter external investment. Although reform legislation has passed through the Mexican Senate, there is widespread dissent from the opposition, National Action Party, and the general public over relinquishing the country's exclusive ownership rights of natural resources. The degree to which IOCs will be able to book reserves is still being determined. It must be remembered that as a developing nation, Mexico has many sectors of its economy that require heavy investment. The risk of high-level corruption and a low redistribution of profits from oil and gas production, along with relatively weak long-term social infrastructure, could only serve to intensify opposition to the reform and any foreign investment that could follow. Apart from the deep-rooted nationalist symbolism that state-owned companies like Pemex represent, there is also the fear that investment from IOCs could lead to a failure to harness the growth dividend. This has traditionally been a common reoccurrence in numerous developing countries with large reserves of natural resources, particularly fossil fuels, as a result of the so-called resource curse. Pemex has already stated they intend to maintain exclusive rights over certain territories with high reserves and disputes over the negotiating procedure could be long and contentious, particularly in the Gulf, where the U.S. and Mexico Mexican territories are split along nautical lines. IOCs such as Chevron and Shell will also consider the political and financial risk of investing in a country where there is continued drug-related violence through the cartels controlling large areas around the northern border with the United States. The potential for cross-border collaboration with the United States could represent an opportunity for long-term mutual benefit for the two countries in terms of investment, energy security, and could possibly ease tensions over immigration reform. If the proposed restructuring of Mexico's energy industry can be implemented, the potential prosperity from foreign investment and employment opportunities may not only stem the tide of immigration to the United States, but possibly result in an influx of returning migrants. In terms of international energy markets, Mexico's regional neighbors in Central and South America, such as Venezuela, Brazil, and Argentina, will be concerned over how this radical legislative reform will affect their offshore and onshore production and investment prospects. Like Mexico, these countries have significant oil and gas reserves, including shale resources in Argentina's case. The relative speed of Mexican legislative reform, after years of prevarication, 
shows the priority given by the Mexican government in securing foreign investment ahead of these countries in order to overtake them as an energy and investment hub for the entire Central and South American region. OPEC, whose members have long exerted considerable influence over the world's oil supply and demand economics, using it to their political leverage on numerous occasions, could view international investment from Western IOCs in Mexico as a potential threat to their privileged position, particularly if hydrocarbon resources can be exploited from tight geological formations as successfully as they have been north of the border. The transformation of the United States and Canada into major oil and gas exporting nations and the geostrategic ties of the three nations could lead to a harmonized energy block. This production wave could also be betrayed by the United States' military and economic might that could challenge OPEC's previously uncontested superiority. The long-term prospects for the Mexican energy industry and its impact in geopolitical terms will only become apparent in the years to come. However, despite the domestic, regional, and international constraints mentioned, Mexico's energy sector potential is considerable, and the legislative reform could be the first step taken by a rejuvenated energy player emerging to shift the dynamics of the old order. Whether it materializes will require shrewd economic policy and diplomacy on behalf of the Mexican government to attract sustainable investment that will benefit the entire country and make it a much stronger regional actor. That concludes this month's student essay on Energy Voices, and if you want to read Connor's essay or other student essays, visit studentenergy.org blog. If you want to contribute your own essay or have thoughts on segments that should be carried on the show, please reach out via the contact information at studentenergy.org. We're going to send things back to Andreas in Valencia for another interview with a cleantech entrepreneurship expert. I'm reporting again from the Climate Energy Summit in Valencia, Spain, and I have the honor to talk to Professor Franz Nauter. He is a lecturer in the public sector innovation at the Hahn University, and he writes for the Management Scope and Science Guide. In addition, he is regularly featured on Business News Radio in the program Getting Started, and most importantly, he is the entrepreneurship lead at the European Institute of Innovation and Technology. Franz, what does long-term energy system success look like to you? Long-term energy system success, wow, that's a long term. <laughs> uh, so successful would be for me if we simply have the same quality of uh, the service because it's like in Europe it's like 99.99% of the time working, which is really nice. It helps us to build a society in a very good functioning way but make it zero, zero carbon and zero emission. And I think that's around the corner in some countries even. So it's a nice puzzle. Interesting. What do you see as the most exciting opportunity or industry over the next 10 years? So the most exciting technology fields in energy or markets, you should say, I think three. Uh, one has nothing to do with uh, technology, it's finance. So the a lot of the hurdles in bringing technologies to market is, is not in the technology, but is in the business model. So we need mm -hmm. business model wizards to figure out a way to get the stuff to customers that are really want technology, but can't afford it yet. Like, for instance, Africa. Uh, yeah, Africa would be number one on my list, actually. It's partly because I, uh, I've lived there, um, but also because it's just such a huge market because they don't have to, the infrastructure yet, so they don't have to build our old infrastructure. No, they, they can build it in a fresh way like they did with mobile. There's hardly any countries with a good backbone of, for telephony, but mobile is perfect in Africa and many countries. 
What is one piece of advice you would give to the next generation of student leaders? So if you're in the student movement and you want to be a leader uh, in this field, it's very easy. Just go out and do it. Join a startup if you can during your studies so you can see what it's like. Be become experienced in this. Because look at podcasts. There are great stuff from Stanford. There are lots of great books. So just read into this. And when I was student studying, the thing I missed was that money is actually very important. I didn't like money. I thought money was corrupting. Um, and what I've learned from my work in entrepreneurship is that you don't need the money to become rich yourself. That's fine. You don't have to, you can, you can stay with your lifestyle if you want that. That's okay. But you need profit to make a scalable business. So you, you have to learn how to do that. That's a, a neat trick. A good entrepreneur not only has a great idea, but knows how to execute and knows how to make money with it in a way that makes the business scalable. So you become, you get beyond the one successful project. You become actually, you can have a huge impact. So if you want to have impact, you need a scalable business model with profit. Now on a more personal level, what is your career's deepest regret? The thing I regret most from my career is that I didn't know that you could do a startup when I was sort of in my 20s. Uh, so I, I never did my own startup. I did set, my, set up my own nonprofit when I was 32. And I did that with my own money, so it actually was an enterprise. Uh, but it, it, it would have been nice to know it sooner. So because when you're in your 20s, you don't, you're not married yet, you don't have a child or mortgage on your home, you don't have an expensive car. So it's much easier to take risk. You, I always say to students, well, you can choose between an MBA and a startup. I would always choose the MBA. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, oh, could we do that over again? <laughs> <laughs> I would always do the startup, of course, yeah. because doing an MBA is very expensive. A startup can be expensive too. But you'll learn a lot, lot more doing the startup. And in a, in a really good scenario, you'll you even make a fortune out of it. Mm -hmm. So do a startup. Thank you, Franz, for giving us this very interesting insights. That's it for me from Spain. Back to you guys. Our final segment of the night is Beyond the Headlines. You're tuned into CJSW 90.9 FM. We're going to experiment with a bit of a different approach to energy topics and energy information with a new segment called Beyond the Headlines. One thing we routinely see in the world of energy is that the dialogue has become incredibly polarized and, and lacks a lot of the depth required to make an informed or intelligent decision on the future of energy. When we have major topics in energy, we try to define them uh, in 140-character tweets. And, and while communication and accessibility are massively important, uh, there's a huge lack of understanding and lack of depth to a lot of the conversation we're having, having in energy globally. Beyond the Headlines will be a, a segment that we're going to play with that attempts to give people some alternative Uh, context to some of the major discussions we're having, and we're going to kick things off with a discussion on the Keystone XL pipeline and what we're missing that is beyond the headlines. We're going to break down this conversation into a few categories, uh, mainly looking at the emissions conversations, the production conversations, and the activism associated with the project uh, to provide people some additional depth and clarity or some alternative viewpoints that they might not necessarily have thought of otherwise. I'm going to start with what I think is the most stark and interesting uh, conversation around the entire Keystone XL pipeline uh, and is the production question. Uh, 
we often see this uh, conversation broken down into uh, a conversation of it's either environmental Armageddon or it's unbridled economic independence for all time. And I think both of those statements are a little bit off the mark. If you think about this project, it's been around for a number of years now, and there's been a lot of geopolitical happenings and, and energy industry movement that has taken place in the meantime. The one statistic on production that I'll share with you that blew my mind uh, and is something that I think shapes and frames a lot of the reason why this decision has dragged on so long uh, with the Obama administration is simply due to the fact that U.S. domestic oil production in 2013 increased by 1.1 million barrels a day. So if you think about it, Keystone XL is a proposal to bring a pipeline from Canada to the United States carrying an estimated 850,000 barrels a day of oil. The United States, when this pipeline was first proposed, was suffering from what many thought was the, the dire effects of peak oil. Oil production had been rapidly decreasing for since the, the 1970s, and 2005 marked the low point of U.S. domestic oil production. Starting in 2006, 2007, 2008, the United States started really developing fracking technology, shale gas technology, tight oil technology, um, and these production numbers miraculously for many people changed and started reversing the trend. If you look at it now, you look at the fact that between 2006, 2007 and now there's been a huge upswing in U.S. oil production. And in one year alone, so one calendar year alone, the United States added more capacity and more production than the entire Keystone XL pipeline would bring to the United States. And for me, a huge amount of this conversation now rests on the fact, does the United States need Canadian oil anymore? Or would they be importing a product that is directly competitive with domestic oil production? The second component that often doesn't get discussed is the actual nitty-gritty details around the emissions that are discussed. So sort of mirroring the conversation that we had about the sort of economic impact in production, there's also uh, a lack of discussion and a lack of depth around the emissions behind this. So first off, uh, there's also a lack of understanding about what is actually happening to U.S. Uh, CO2 emissions. Uh, very few people realize that since 2005, uh, 2005 was actually the peak year of U.S. CO2 emissions. Um, and in 2013, the United States had 12% lower CO2 emissions than they did in 2005. So over eight years, there was a 12% reduction in their CO2 emissions, something that very infrequently gets reported on. And most people assume that those emissions have actually just been steadily increasing when the opposite is true. Um, and the question that often comes up or the response is, oh, the, there was a big recession in between there and the economy was in a much different position. And that is absolutely true. Um, but to give you a bit of context, the NASDAQ, which is sort of the, the pulse of the American economy in 2005 when emissions were at their peak, was at uh, a peak of 2,273 points on the NASDAQ. Um, and the peak in 2013 was uh, 4,165. So uh, you almost had 100% growth in the NASDAQ index. Um, and in that period of time, you decreased your emissions by 12%. So there is a bit of a decoupling of economic growth and economic activity um, from the emissions. And obviously, those aren't perfect uh, correlations, but just some context there. Um, so 
the the conversation around that the Keystone XL pipeline is game over for the planet or environmental Armageddon uh, is something that uh, I feel has been hugely overplayed and has, has struck fear in a number of people when it's it's factually incorrect. Um, to put, again, some context and some depth beyond the headlines here and to, to shine a bit of a, a focus back on U.S. emissions, um, there's some fun facts that we're going to share with you from the U.S. power sector. So the, the power sector, which is essentially the electricity generation um, sector in the United States, accounts for one-third of their total greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, that alone, so one-third of U.S. Um, greenhouse gas emissions, actually represents 14% um, of all uh, global emissions. So the United States is 14% of global emissions. Of their emissions, one-third comes from the power sector. So you get about 5% of global CO2 is just U.S. power production. And of that number, 75% uh, of the U.S. emissions from power comes from coal. So you do a little bit of math and you realize that of all of the emissions that we emit in the entire world, 3.5% of the entire world's CO2 emissions come from United States coal alone. And the oil sands in their aggregate, in the, the entirety of the oil sands, represent 0.15% uh, of the world's CO2 emissions. Uh, I know this is a little bit of intense math here, but if you, if you carry with me, you'll see that the new regulations uh, provide, that Obama just released um, calling on uh, a 10% reduction in the CO2 emissions from power plants. Uh, so if you take the fact that there's 3.5% of the entire world CO2 comes from coal plants in the United States, and if they have to reduce their emissions by 10%, you're reducing 0.35% of the entire world CO2 just with that one uh, environmental regulation. So just by having a moderate uh, regulation on American coal plants, you're more than doubling the entire environmental impact that completely wiping the oil sands off the face of the earth would do. And so we think it's really important for people to actually fact check and realize the numbers and, and where we can have some huge low-hanging fruit uh, in the world of emissions reduction and in solving problems like climate change um, with what was actually a relatively politically, uh, politically neutral or politically positive regulation, that there wasn't a huge amount of opposition um, to coal regulations in the U.S., and this will have a disproportionately large impact on global emissions. The, the last piece that we wanted to discuss here is 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 shining a, a positive life light on why the Keystone the the no KXL movement the no Keystone XL movement has been so powerful and so successful. Uh, oftentimes, people uh, will try to label the, the the activists as radicals or as extremists, and and I think that that's uh, again uh, moving things to an extreme that is unnecessary. Um, and and I. I think there's a lot of human psychology and, and reasons why this particular project has been so successful at rallying a real emotional base and an emotional following. And I want to just point those out uh, more as, as a lesson learned as far as how other environmentalists can rally uh, support around particular projects or around particular initiatives. Um, and some of these are taken from the, the debate we did with Sapporo Berman and Art Sterrett and John Carruthers around the Northern Gateway Pipeline in Canada. Um, and Sapporo had a really good uh, quote where she was talking about how 
this is a line in the sand and a focus on the infrastructure side of things was key, really key. So I just wanted to explore what some of these contextual uh, and depth reasons why the environmental movement has been so successful in making Keystone XL such a hot topic. Um, I think first and foremost, they drew the line in the sand about something that's very uh, tangible and very representative of a longer term energy conversation. So uh, a pipeline represents a 40 or 50 year decision in energy. It's something that if it is built, financed, constructed and operated, those operate over decade, multi-decade timelines. And it was really this line in the sand to say, are we going to continue building infrastructure that supports the fossil fuel industry or are we finally going to look in a different direction and focus on alternative technologies renewable technologies etc and so it was really a focus of that this is a lock-in decision that while we discussed that it might only represent 0.15 or 0.2 percent of global emissions it's still that concept of building massive multi-billion dollar infrastructure that is a lock-in to existing fossil fuels so that's the first point that i think the the environmental movement really focused on the the second one that there was a real dynamic of us versus them that it's u.s the U.S. border versus the Canadian border. It's a Canadian company versus U.S. citizens. Even the the Nebraska farmers and, and the, the, the movement around um, opposition to the pipeline in Nebraska really pitted uh, sort of the, the local, the individual versus the, the agnostic large um, sort of behemoth, either country or, or, or corporation. And so just the very human dynamics of conflict were, were brought to the fore. The, the other um, aspect that I think that the, the environmental movement really focused on um, was also changing the conversation from uh, everyone always, is always focused on how do we get the facts out and how do we get the, the, the facts and the information out. And I, I feel the environmental movement did a really good job of making it an emotional conversation and getting people emotionally and, and personally invested. And they did this really effectively through harnessing media. And it's a case study in, in the power of media, as there were many sort of individual celebrities um, or, or movie stars or musicians that came out in opposition to the project who, who are not energy experts. They're not people who uh, understand the specifics of global emissions or, or trading differentials or whatnot, but they really focused on that idea of how do you first focus on opinion leaders and media leaders um, who will then bring masses of followers uh, who, even if they're just involved at a very surface level, got involved in opposition to the project. And that was something that uh, the the industry side of things completely failed to have any sort of large groundswell of support um, or, or sort of influential media support because uh, they, they didn't, this isn't something that was sort of on the radar. So um, and then the, the last piece um, that I feel uh, was, is really important context to understand here and one of the reasons why this has become such a contentious issue, um, and this is just completely a personal op opinion of mine, but I feel like TransCanada and the Keystone XL project really failed at uh, providing any sort of sense of how this project was a bridge to a more sustainable future. The conversation and the questions around the impact on the environment and the concerns around spills and that sort of thing was in, was responded to with a conversation of jobs and economic benefit. And it was very separate conversations. On one hand, there was this environment, the environmental movement that is really focused on how do we transition ourselves towards a more sustainable future? How do we start thinking longer term about our energy system? And the response wasn't in the same ballpark and the response has never been in the same ballpark. And I've always been 
starving for creative solutions to some of these ideas where uh, even something as simple as a two to four dollar per barrel tax on the the oil flowing through that pipeline if you took a two to four dollar barrel tax and said this pipeline is a piece of legacy fossil fuel infrastructure but that will be used to fund and facilitate a transition to a more sustainable future say you take the the number two dollars per per barrel at a 850,000 barrel a day pipeline, you're left with 1.6, 1.7 million dollars a day, which if you had a, a, a small scale one megawatt wind turbine, you could create and you could pay for and create a wind turbine every single day for 40 years with the revenues from that project. And I think that there's this desire for more ambitious, more forward thinking and more progressive policy where you're actually using the wealth and the resources that we have today to build wealth and resources for tomorrow. And there have just never been any sort of creative ideas or creative suggestions lobbied uh, around any of these projects which actually help facilitate a transition to a more sustainable future. It's really around how do we create jobs today? How do we create tax benefits today? Uh, how do we support the existing energy companies today? And there's been no thought about how we use this as a bridge to a more sustainable system. So this was, uh, again, just a new segment that we wanted to, to try and, and to give some context to some really vital conversations that are happening in energy. If you have any uh, conversations or headlines that you'd like more depth on, uh, please tweet us or post on Facebook using hashtag Energy Voices on which topics in energy you want us to go beyond the headlines with. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Energy Voices on CGSW 90.9 FM. Tonight's show was one of the most diverse shows that we've done, covering topics from geopolitics to energy efficiency to pipelines to entrepreneurship and, and really showcases the, the diverse world of energy and how much activity currently takes place in what is one of the largest industries in the entire world. We also wanted to share one exciting announcement from the world of student energy with all of our listeners. At the recent regional summits, we made the announcement that the next International Student Energy Summit will be taking place in June of 2015 in Bali, Indonesia. If you want more information or are interested to sign up, please visit isis2015.com. That's I-S-E-S-2015.com. Energy Voices is produced by Kai Sinclair and Sean Collins with contributions from Alvaro Migoya, Andreas Lehner, Connor O'Sullivan, and the always wonderful Jenny Match. I would also like to extend a personal thank you to Mark Affeld, who's moved on from his position at CGSW to pursue further education. Mark was a wonderful mentor and really helped shape and craft Energy Voices into the show it is, and we wish him best of luck in his future endeavors.